We're going to continue through our series through the Gospel of Mark and really looking at the life of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage for today, Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 23. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 23. I'll be reading from the ESV, and the words will also go up on the screen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, And is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Amen. The word of the Lord. Our passage today, it's a continuation of Jesus' conflict uh, with these Jewish leaders, religious leaders from Israel who are called the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, these men have come from Jerusalem to observe him. You see, at this time, Jesus' fame was spreading all throughout Israel after he fed 5,000, after he was healing the sick and casting out demons. Many were gathering and many were talking about him. Some people were saying that, that Jesus could be, could be Elijah the prophet who's returned. Others were saying that Jesus was John the Baptist who had come back to life. His greatness was so evident that after he fed the 5,000, those people wanted to make him king. They wanted to make him king. They saw his miraculous power and they said, let's make him king so we can overthrow Herod. Let's make him king so that we can overthrow this Roman occupation that is plaguing our land. In other words, Jesus was trending, right? He was trending like crazy. And so the religious leaders of Israel, they'd come to not only observe him, but they also came to test him and to see whether he would be a threat to their authority. And so they asked him questions. They asked Jesus, why don't your disciples fast like our disciples fast? Or in chapter 7, they ask, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Now, they weren't asking about nutrition or they weren't asking about hygiene. This was a question about doctrine. You see, these Pharisees wanted to know if Jesus and his disciples would follow their oral tradition. They wanted to know whether Jesus and his disciples would maintain the religious status quo that they had fought and established in Israel. But if you were here for the message two weeks ago, you see, and you'll see today, that Jesus rejects their oral tradition. You see, he rejects their tradition. He rejects their way of ministry because these Pharisees were guilty of rejecting the commandments of God. They had elevated their oral tradition, their oral law, to be equal to the law of God, the commandments of God. And so he looks at these Pharisees and he calls them hypocrites who worship God with their lips, but whose hearts are far from him. That was 
two weeks ago in the beginning of chapter 7. And the passage we have today, this is a continuation of that conversation. And Jesus starts talking about what really makes us unclean before God. And he says it has nothing to do with externals. It has nothing to do with whether you wash the dirt off your hands before you eat. That doesn't make you clean and right with God. It has nothing to do with what you eat, whether it's pork or lobster or shrimp. That doesn't deny you the grace and the blessing of God. He's saying those things don't defile you. Jesus is telling us in this passage today, if you want to know what really defiles you, what really makes you unclean before God, you need to look at your own heart. You need to know the nature of sin. You need to know the darkness of the human heart. This is his point. True defilement doesn't come from the outside. It doesn't come from what we eat and what we consume. No, true defilement begins with us. It's in us. It comes from our hearts. The title of today's message is Out of the Heart. Out of the Heart. And as we look at our passage, we're going to see three things, three things that I want to unpack, and it's this. First, the centrality of the heart, its importance, right, its role in our lives, the centrality of our heart. Second, false remedies for the heart, false remedies for the heart. And thirdly, the renovation of the heart. So the centrality, false rem uh, remedies, and the renovation of the heart, now, if someone were to ask us, or if someone were to ask you, tell me who you are, tell me who you are, how would you respond? You'd probably start by saying where you were from, right, or where you live. Maybe others of you would talk about where you went to school or what you do for work. We might talk about our families, our hobbies, our interests, our pets. I'll probably start talking about my dog again. But in, rea in reality, those things are not who you are. Those things are accidentals of who you are. They're not essentials of who you are. Now, our lives would surely be different if we had another job. Your life would surely be different if you married another person, right? Or if you had fewer kids or more kids or made more money or made less money. Your life would surely be different, but your identity, your true identity would be the same. You see, I'd still be who I was, or I am, if I was born in New York versus North Carolina. My accent would be different, right? I'd have a little New Yorker East Coast accent, right? But I'd still be the same person. If I went to UCLA rather than USC, I'd still be the same person. I'd have less school pride, right? <laughs> less to be proud about, right? I mean, hey, do you guys see that four by 400 race of the USC women's track. It, you guys have to watch it. It was the most epic comeback I've ever seen. Watch it on YouTube, hopefully not during the sermon, uh, but so much Trojan pride. But I'd still be the same person if I ended up like a, Bru a, a Bruin. Um, I struggle even saying that, <laughs> right? But there's a reason why this is true, that even through change in different circumstances, different relationships, we would still be the same person. Why? Because the Bible tells us that your true nature, the Bible tells us that who you truly are, it's found in your heart, okay? Your heart is the real you. Your heart represents the center of your personality, your desires, your loves, your wills, your passions flow from your heart. When we say that someone truly loves us, we're saying that they know our heart. Not just our background, not just our resume, not just information they can pull off of your LinkedIn profile, but they know you, your fears. 
They know what makes you feel loved. They know your deepest joys, your deepest needs, and your desires. They know your heart. Your heart reveals your true self. So if you're a person whose heart is set on success, whose heart is set on power, you know what you're going to do? That, that, that obsession, that idol is going to manifest in every context. Whether you're a lawyer, whether you work for a nonprofit, whether you work as a teacher, you and your ambition, your heart that wants success and power, you're going to want to climb the ranks in every context and, gainer and garner more and more influence. If your heart is set on control, or your heart is set on approval, that is going to manifest in every relationship you have. Whether you are single, whether you are married, whether you have children or not, that idol of control is going to come out in any permutation. Your desire for control, your longing for approval will be there. Why? Because that's in your heart, and it's part of who you are. This is why Jesus says in verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. What is Jesus saying here? It's this. If you really want to talk about being clean, if you really want to talk about being unclean, if you really want to understand what it means to be right with God and accepted by him, you have to stop looking at the things going into us. You have to stop just looking at behavior. You have to stop just looking at, at, at actions and works. You have to look at what comes out of us, what flows out of our hearts. And what comes out of our hearts reveals our true nature, our true sinfulness, our true defilement. Now, this seems very straightforward to us, but to the Jews, this was completely radical. Okay. When he started talking about, hey, food doesn't make you unclean, your heart and what comes out of your heart makes you unclean, to the Jews, this was radical because to the Jews, their life, their world was shaped around something called the dietary laws, the dietary laws. And, and it, you know, if you have any Jewish friends or uh, you've been out to Westwood, you probably know what it means to be kosher, right, what it means to be kosher. And so Orthodox Jews to this day still will not eat pork. Right? They will refrain from certain kind of seafood, particularly the, 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 the food with uh, shellfish from the sea. Why? It's not because they don't like bacon. Everybody loves bacon. It's out of their orthodoxy, their commitment to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. You see, these dietary laws were an identifier for the Jews. It made them who they are. What was the difference between a Philistine and a Jew and an Egyptian and a Jew? There were several things, things like Sabbath-keeping, for the men, it was something like circumcision. But for all of Israel, it was the dietary laws. By what we eat and what we refuse to eat, we are telling one another and telling the world who we are. Real Jews, the people of God, the sons and daughters of Abraham, do not eat pork. And if you did, you were considered unclean. And if you did, you were considered in sin. And if you did, you were considered, your relationship with God was broken. But Jesus, in his statement, he says, that's not true. That's not true, at least not anymore. You see, his teaching was so radical that as simple and straightforward as it seems to us, we're like, yeah, that makes sense. We don't struggle with what Jesus is talking about in verse 15. His disciples didn't even understand what he was saying. 
And so after all the crowds leave, after the scribes and the Pharisees leave, and they end up just at home hanging out in the evening, the disciples are like, "Uh, we didn't want to embarrass ourselves and act like we don't know what you're talking about. But Jesus, can you explain what you meant? Why did you say that? Because the dietary laws, they they weren't made up by the Pharisees, okay? The dietary laws weren't made up by the scribes. They were in the Torah. They're in the Old Testament, Moses brought that to Israel. And so they're like, Jesus, how can you tell us that what we eat doesn't make us unclean? Moses taught us that if we eat these unclean foods, we are unclean. Now I'm going to use a theological and legal term here. This is where Jesus abrogates the dietary law. This means that Jesus is annulling and he's revoking the dietary laws. Now, it's not because Jesus is anti-Old Testament. It's not because Jesus is anti-Mosaic law. It's rather that Jesus is fulfilling the law, and he's liberating us from this part of the law. This actually happened again with the apostle Peter in Acts 10. If you guys have read through that, there's that scene, and Peter gets a vision on the rooftop of, of all these types of foods, and God says, rise, kill, eat, and Peter's like, I've never eaten any of those foods. Those are unclean, They've never even touched my lips. I can't. And God says, don't call anything unclean that I have made. I've deemed these things clean. And God speaks to him directly, and he's like, "Ah, I don't know about that. And so he has that vision a second time, and finally he realizes that there is a purpose to this. You see, God is telling us that the dietary laws are no longer binding for the Christian for two reasons. First, because God is telling us the gospel is no longer reserved to the Jews. To be a son and a daughter of God does not mean that you, you are only and must be part of national Israel. No, God wants to see his gospel go out to the nations, and it's for the Gentiles, and that's why circumcision is no longer required for you to become a son of God. And in the same way, these dietary laws were now abrogated. Why? Because God wanted his gospel to go out to the Gentiles. The second reason why this part of the law was abrogated was to show us the true meaning of being made clean. You see, to the Jews, what they ate and what they didn't eat was a symbol of of their, their relationship with God, right? And them being cleansed and set apart as the people of God. Well, who does that for us now? Is it food? Is it circumcision? Is it works? No, Jesus. We are holy by the bloodshed work of Jesus. We are accepted on the basis of Jesus. We are made clean by the work of Christ, the Lamb of God slain for our sins. And so no longer is it, do you eat pork or not? It's, do you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior or not? And that makes you clean. The gospel has fulfilled this requirement. That's why Jesus abrogates this and he teaches us and the disciples are are beginning to understand. Jesus tells his disciples, food, it just goes in your stomach and out your body, right? Out your body. How does that really make you defiled before God? He says, no, what defiles you comes from your heart. Your heart is the central issue here. Now, here's the thing. When we know this, what we try to do is create false remedies, false fixes, man-made fixes now for our hearts because that's just our nature. We see a problem and we want to solve it. So suddenly Jesus says the issue is not what you eat, it's your heart. And so we say, okay, okay, that's good. Then let me fix my heart. 
Let me remedy my heart. Let me change my heart. And Jesus says, okay, this is the type of things, these are the type of things that come from your heart. Verse 12, I mean, in, in verse 21, he lists 12 examples of sinful attitudes and behaviors that flow from our hearts. I want to read that once again. I read it really quickly. I'm going to read it a little more uh, dramatically and a little slowly for us. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things, all, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, as I read this, two things happened. First, I just read it really quickly, right? Generally, when we're reading the Bible and we see lists, especially if it's like genealogy names, you just, blah, 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 you just like kind of micro-machine and skip through it real quick, right? And then when it's like a list of sin, I find myself just reading quickly through it as well. And I think there's, there's something about, and I ask myself, like, why am I doing that? Why would I read so quickly and just gloss over these sins? And I realize it's because I don't want to see the ugliness of myself, right? I don't want to be told that I'm a slanderer, that I have wicked thoughts, that I'm an adulterer or uh, impure or evil. I don't want to hear any of that. I just want to hear that I'm loved, right? Hashtag blessed, right? That, th those are the types of things that we're looking for in our Bible. And I realize that, that there's something about me that wants to not repent of sin, but just not look at my sin. Right? And for that, I needed to repent. But there's a second thing that happened, and, and I'm wondering if this happened for you as I was reading this list, and it was shocking that even though Jesus is talking about our hearts, what I did is I immediately assessed my actions. Did you? You look at that list and you're like, wait, did I do any of these? Am I guilty of any of it? Have, have I stolen? Have I murdered? No, hopefully not. Have I committed adultery? No. Um, theft? Yeah, back when I was young. And we just start reading the list, and you look not at your heart. You start looking at your actions, and you're like, guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Kind of struggle with that one uh, in process. And, and we, just, we just treat this like a checklist to evaluate, am I doing it well, or am I falling short back and forth? Brothers and sisters, this is works righteousness. This is works righteousness, and this is what it does. It blinds us to our hearts, okay? It blinds us to our hearts. If you see a list of sin, and you simply ask, did I do it or did I not? Guilty or innocent, that is looking at the law through the lens of works righteousness. This is what the Pharisees were doing. You know what's so sad about the Pharisees? They met Jesus in the flesh. They spoke with Jesus. They could have had meals with Jesus. They witnessed Jesus healing. They witnessed Jesus casting out demons. They heard Jesus talking, and yet because they were so focused on their works, on their righteousness, on their traditions, they were blind to Jesus. You guys get that? Isn't that so tragic that their obsession with their works blinded them to the work and person of Christ. You see, we've all heard that phrase, think before you speak, right? 
think before you speak, or maybe your parents have said this, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all, right? If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. And we've all tried to practice this. We've all tried to practice this, but in reality, you know what this is? This is behavior modification. It's us trying to be good people. It's us trying to be moral. We're trying to act and behave like a good person or like a good Christian. And when we become moralistic, what we're doing is we're trying to hide our hearts or we're trying to suppress our hearts of whatever anger there is, whatever frustration and criticism and judgment Right? Whatever envy and covetousness there is, that's in our hearts. And we're trying to suppress that. We're like, oh my gosh, I'm so frustrated at this person. I'm so mad at my wife. I'm so angry at my children, but I'm going to bite my tongue. I'm going to bite my tongue because that's the right thing to do. That's what a good husband does. That's what a good father does. That's what a good Christian does. But you know what the Bible says? Out of our hearts, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is the reality. You can fight your heart all you want. You can try to control your heart as much as you can, but the reality is you can't change your heart. Think about that. How many of you are here just fighting your heart, fighting what you really want to say, fighting what you really want to do? Even if you don't curse, even if you don't gossip, even if you don't slander, your heart is still struggling with anger, cynicism, being critical and judgmental. And the longer you fight your heart, the longer you try to control your heart, the more exhausted and hopeless you become. Are you there? I've been there. And I've been there in the context of church, right? I'm not even talking about like my spouse or my parents. Like at church, at my previous church, not this one because all nations, we're perfect, right? We're just, mm, right? And even my staff, no dysfunctionality. We just love each other, completely Christ-like. But at my previous church, right? At my previous church, um, I went through a really difficult season with our staff. Man, I I was so frustrated, so angry, so critical. And I'm a pastor working with other pastors, right? We even sought out counseling. We even sought out coaching. We even sought out a mediator to help us right? To help us be reconciled, to love one another, to be a healthier staff. And, and literally, guys, before every staff meeting for a season, I'm driving to church and I'm telling myself, Michael, bite your tongue. Michael, speak words of grace. Be encouraging, right? And after every staff meeting, I'm like, I would text my staff and be like, hey, I'm sorry, I was out of line, right? Like, like, it, it, was, it was like, it was a, a ridiculous cycle, Right? I go in knowing, man, like I need to not be so critical. I need to not be so defensive or I need to not be so judgmental. And I'm trying to tell myself, I'm trying to control my tongue. But over and over again, I was failing. And so I shared, we got counseling, we got coaching. But you know what that did? That just gave us techniques. They gave us techniques to try and control our hearts or to control one another. Have you guys ever kind of experienced, gone, like gone through therapy and the counselor's giving you techniques and, and you're trying to use them on yourself, but you're like, this isn't really working, but maybe if I use them on the other person, uh, they'll start doing what I want them to do. It's very interesting, right? Very interesting that happens. And that was happening with us and our staff. And this is what I realized looking back. I needed to stop trying to veil my heart. I need to stop trying to act like a good pastor. 
Stop trying to act like a good Christian and bite my tongue. You know what I needed to do? I needed to listen to my heart. I needed to see the sin in my heart. I needed to look deep into the darkness, that pride, that foolishness, that envy, that wickedness, that arrogance, and take that heart to the Lord. That's what we need to do. We need to look at our sinful hearts, not look away. Look at our sinful hearts and then let that press us to the Savior. You see, the more you wrestle with your sinful heart, the more you realize you can't change your heart, you're going to come to an end of yourself and you're going to say, God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. I've tried with all of my might, all of my efforts, all of my tactics to to be a better person, to be the better pastor, to be the right kind of husband, to be the right kind of friend, and I am letting myself, my church, my family, my community down. I need you. And this is the intent of the law, to show you your sin and lead you to the Savior. That's what the law is designed to do to bring us to an end of ourselves, that we would stop trying to fix and save ourselves and trust in the saving work of another. This is why Jesus is exposing our sins. This is why he lists out this kind of heavy and dark list. It's uncomfortable reading even some of those words about sensuality, sexual immorality, right? And he's not trying to put us on a guilt trip. No, he's trying to show us our sin, show us our hearts, and then lead us to repentance. Brothers and sisters, we need to stop trying to remedy our hearts with our own works. We need to stop trying to remedy our hearts with our own efforts and go to Jesus Christ, who is alone able to renovate our hearts. Paul Tripp, in his classic work, he has an amazing book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He has a great quote that I want to share with you. It's going to go up on the screen. It's a little long, but uh, you can read along. If my heart is the source of my sin problem, then lasting change must always travel through the pathway of my heart. It is not enough to alter my behavior or change my circumstances. Christ transforms people by radically changing their hearts. If the heart doesn't change, the person's words and behavior may change temporarily because of an external pressure or incentive. But when the pressure or incentive is removed, the changes will disappear. Is that true of you? How many times have you tried to change, right? How many times have you tried to incentivize your change, right? The biggest one is uh, a lot of my friends, when they're trying to lose weight, they get up with a bunch of other friends and they try to play the biggest loser, Right, the biggest loser. And so they'll set a time and they'll say, whoever can lose the most weight in six months is going to win. And to up the ante, I've had friends who put in $500 each. I was like, $500 each? I was like, that's crazy. But they just need that incentive for change. Here's the thing. Like right after the, the game is over, they go back to In-N-Out, King Taco, right? Lucille's Barbecue, and all of that weight comes right back, right? All of that weight comes right back. When we think about change, especially parenting, there's some things that we do, right? We threaten, right? Threaten. How many parents are like, if you do not stop spanking your si- or hitting your sister, I will spank you, right? Or maybe you say, if you do that again, I'm going to leave you. There's threats. There's fears. And that may get us in line for a season. It changes our behavior, 
it will not change your heart. We manipulate. We say to our children, if you get good grades, I will reward you. My father used to buy me a video game every time I came back with straight A's, right? Straight A's. And so in elementary, it was easy. In high school, there was no more video games, right? (laughs) But my father was all about incentivizing my behavior. My my father was such an incentivizer. He wanted me to eat sushi. I never ate sushi. And so he was like, for every piece of sushi you eat, I will give you $10. I was like, all right, money talks. Let's do it. And so I started eating and I threw up. I, I, like, I couldn't put it down. But my father was always trying to incentivize me. It didn't change me. It was only for a short season. Or we tried to instill guilt. I say, if you keep doing that, you're going to hurt me. When you say such things, you hurt me. When you do that or when you don't do that, that disappoints me. And so we try to guilt people into doing what we want them to do, into better behavior, into better morals. But like Paul Tripp says, when the pressure or incentive is removed, the changes disappear. Haven't you seen that in your life? Haven't you seen that in your relationships? What we need is not behavior change. We need heart renovation. Now, let me get really practical here. There are times when we need to put accountability, safeguards, and practices in our life to help us change. So I'm not saying that if you just worship the Lord and pray, your just life will change. Like one day you'll wake up and you're like, oh, you know, uh, no more porn addiction and no more uh, you know, alcohol addiction and, and, and no more like depression. It, it, it's just not like that, okay? So there are times where we need to put in safeguards. If your problem is porn, then maybe you need to install something called covenant eyes into your computer. I had a friend who did that. He couldn't even open up ESPN, right, because of the swimsuit edition. He was like, man, I can't even look at ESPN because of covenant eyes. I was like, hey, it's you and God, right? You, you and the Lord. Um, maybe you need that. If your problem is cursing and gossip, maybe you need accountability and you need to create a swear jar. I did this in high school, right? For every swear word, it was $1 and it got real expensive and I changed real quick, right? It changed real quick. But even in those practices, the heart is the key. The heart is the key. Why are you doing this? Why do you want to cut that addiction? Why do you want to stop that destructive behavior? And it can't just be because I want to be a better person or I want to be accepted by others or I want people to think I'm spiritual. It has to be for the love of God from the love of God, right? You see, the reason why I wanted to stop cursing was not because my parents were upset at me. My parents cursed all the time. So when I cursed, it was just our family language, right? (laughs) But in high school, what changed was, and I, I read in the scriptures, this challenge, right? How can, right, both blessings and worship to God and curses towards man flow from the same fountain? And I said, Lord, I want my lips to be for you. I want my words to be redemptive and true and not be curses, right? And so my heart and my desire to love God and live for him and my heart that was filled with his love wanted to change. And so then I create a swear jar and have some accountability with friends. And we all did this together. But the motive was the heart. And then I put in applications and practices and safeguards. Brothers and sisters, what do you want to change in your life? Or what do you need to change in your life? As you look at that list of sins that Jesus lays out for us, where is your heart most convicted? 
Where is your life most in, in desperate need of, of renovation and change? I want to lead us to our final scripture passage for today, and, and, and I hope it encourages us. It is, it is our hope, our blueprint for true change. And it comes from the Old Testament, a prophet named Ezekiel. And I'm going to read from the NIV, NIV. And so this is for many of us like our childhood Bible. From Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 3 to 5. This is what God speaks to and through Ezekiel. He says, son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts, and this is Israel, and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? He's saying, should I even let them speak to me? Should I even answer them? Should, should we even keep this relationship and fellowship going? And he says, therefore, speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Amen. This is our God. This is your God a God who sees your idolatry, a God who sees your divided and wicked and sin-stained heart. And he says, I will recapture your heart. I will fight for you. I will fight against those idols of your heart and I will make you mine. That is such a powerful passage for us. That is such a powerful promise for us that he would fight for our hearts, that he would not just abandon Israel to those idols, but that he would recapture their hearts. Brothers and sisters, this is the heart of the gospel, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we have given our hearts over to idols of this world, whether there's idols of power, approval, control, that God sent his son to recapture our hearts through the power of the cross. You see, brothers and sisters, renovation of the heart, it doesn't happen through behavior modification. It happens through regeneration. Regeneration is the Christian word for being reborn. Reborn and filled by the Holy Spirit. And this is what happens when you look at your sin. You confess those sins to Jesus and believe that Jesus is your Savior. When you see Jesus and you see the cross and you realize that he lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived, that we have failed to live, that he lived it out. And that when he died on the cross, he didn't die for his own sins, but he died for ours that he took the full penalty of idolatry, the full penalty of wickedness, that whole list of sins. Jesus committed none of these. We have committed all of them. But in Christ, he paid for those. He atones for our sin. And three days later, he rose again, demonstrating his victory over sin and death, promising us life everlasting promising us that, that he is not just a great teacher, but he is the risen Lord. Brothers and sisters, when you and I believe in the gospel, when you and I trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Our hearts are regenerated, and there is hope, gospel hope, divine hope and power for you and I to have new hearts 
for you and I to truly be changed? Would you believe on Christ? Would you offer your heart to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. And we confess that though our categories may not be the same as the Pharisees who judged external sins with the washing of hands and the eating of certain foods, we confess that that we have our own issues, that we play our own games of works righteousness through our forms of morality and goodness, through our forms of spirituality. We try to make ourselves right with you. Father, have mercy on us. God, I pray that right now you would would show us our sin. And I pray, Lord, that that it wouldn't end there, but as you show us our sin and our hearts, that that would lead us to the Savior. Help us to truly come to an end of ourselves and find life in Christ. I pray for the work and the and the filling of the Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts, to give us the changed heart, the renewed heart, the pure heart that we all desperately long for. God, we thank you that you are a God who promises and fights to recapture our heart. Would you do that this day in us and in our church? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.